I just got rid of a Polaroid. (laughs) No, that hurts me. Welcome to episode four of the Hormesis podcast. Tonight, Nicholas and I will be discussing radiomics research in medical physics or related fields. So the first mention of genomics was in 1958 and only had about one to two publications per year until about 1987, when it really took off. And then the next evolution was radiogenomics, which appeared in 2005, and then morphed into radiomics in about 2012. And since then, the number of radiomics papers has just grown like wildfire, while genomics papers have kind of plateaued at about, oh, you know, 2,000 a year. (laughs) So last year, there were over 350 papers published about radiomics, you know, according to PubMed. So that first paper in 2012 about radiomics was called Radiomics, Extracting More Information from Medical Images Using Advanced Feature Analysis. And that was released out of the ERTS group, led by Lambin. And so I think while it's important to note that while the term radiomics is relatively new, the concept really isn't. Uh, for instance, the term texture feature has been in use since 1945 and fairly actively published on since 1992. Yeah, so I think it's important also to mention the reason you bring up genomics is that the idea of radiomics is applying the feature searching that was uh, made ubiquitous by genomics research to to research on radiographic imaging, to sort of be able to create features and, and analyze them. I think you're going to talk a bit more about what that actually means. but Sure. So, as you said, you know, it started in genomic data and then was applied to radiographic images. And so, the definition given in that first 2012 AIRS paper is the high-throughput extraction of large amounts of image features from radiographic images. And so some examples of imaging features would be like intensity features, texture features, shape, just kind of these statistics like histogram features, or even, you know, handcrafted features such as like, does this tumor have a necrotic core, that kind of thing. And the list goes on and on. So once you have these imaging features, what do you do with them? And so typically, you can either correlate them to handcrafted features to try to automatically extract information that radiologists already use, which could then be correlated to histology or genetics or uh, survival data, something like that, to try and tell, you know, how aggressive is this tumor? Will it respond to therapy? Will it respond to X therapy versus Y therapy? All sorts of different things. And one interesting thing to note is that, you know, we're talking about radiographic images for the moment. But if you have a histology slide that's digitized, you can do the same thing. You can perform feature analysis on it and get a lot of the same information. So you can actually do radiomics on both your radiographic images and your histology slides and then correlate them and really go nuts. (laughs) Yeah. And this all sounds like it's a sort of AI algorithms-based analysis of data. And one of the things you start to think of when you hear that is the idea of deep learning and 
big data. But radiomics is slightly different from the idea of deep learning, though it can be employed in deep learning and employ deep learning ideas. But the primary difference is really that radiomics is trying to to define the features that you expect to see in the data and then look for how you weight those different features to determine the outcome of what you're testing. But deep learning, you're, you don't get really to define those things. You might create definitions for feature extraction, but you let the learning algorithm figure out new features on its own. And so the entire idea of radiomics versus deep learning is that we try and guide the learning more directly. Like we know that these features are probably important and we can extract them using this particular calculation on the data set or apply algorithms to the data that we see to try and come up with something. Whereas deep learning, we aren't really telling it what to do. We're letting it figure all of those things out on its own. So, as you mentioned, uh, while related, there are some very large differences between radiomics and deep learning. And today we're going to focus on radiomics and save deep learning for its own episode at some point in the future. So, I think a good place to start kind of diving into this topic is with the good news. You know, how has radiomics research in the past been supported and successful past radiomics research? Um, so, as we mentioned, there are 350 papers that came out just last year about radiomics. But the whole field as in general has been fairly controversial. And I'm pretty well-versed in why it's controversial and the shortcomings of radiomics, and less so in the supportive evidence. Nick, would you like to dive into a paper about some of that positive research? Absolutely. So one of the ways that uh, radiomics has found actual clinical application so far, um, sort of the, the success story would be in uh, computer-aided diagnosis systems for uh, breast cancer detection. And there's uh, a paper that's sort of a review article of all of the different systems out there that are in clinical use or have publications on them. We will link to it on the website. And they go through uh, looking at uh, some of the publications that have been out there and some of the systems that are currently in use for computer-aided diagnosis of breast cancer. And there are some pretty decent success stories of uh, being able to identify from mammogram images and certain particular features that they're trying to map, being able to have very high uh, sensitivity and specificity, which is exactly what you need if it's going to be a screening test. And that's kind of the hope with radiomics is that you don't have to sit these images in front of a person and review them. You can sit them Every image that's already being collected anyway, run it through a computer and the computer can do it without spending human time on it um, and sort of flag it up to the higher level. Um, and so these have very high sensitivities and specificities on some of these uh, studies that they mention. And so this is one area where I think it's done a good job um, because they have a very clear idea of what features are important to look for and the images are pretty... Uh, straightforward to pull data out of to be able to to do this. But I think that sort of leads into the 
limitations that we see currently in radiomics, if you want to sort of mention those things. So a lot of these uh, weaknesses are from a paper by Kumar et al. that we will link on the website. And they're kind of different classes of limitations. And the main the main issue is that, you know, these radiomics features are very dependent on a lot of different parameters. The first big one being image acquisition and reconstruction. So, for instance, in PET, are you acquiring data using time of flight or not? What's your detector size? What's your detector sensitivity? And you can imagine just how the way you're scanning or reconstructing your data is going to really change your radiomics values. There are some other ways to correct this as well, including scanner harmonization, making sure that you acquire images in the same way. Even if you have two different scanners, you can reconstruct things that they come out looking pretty similar using phantoms and the like. So on the image acquisition and reconstruction side, there's also just scanner variability. You can scan the same pet phantom on 170 different scanners, and even something so simple as SUV Max was found to vary widely between scanners. And this was in a study by Sunderland and Christian published in 2015. The next uh, parameter that we need to discuss is um, image segmentation rendering. So this is fairly well known that interposition variability is pretty all over the place. So as far as image segmentation goes, if you even have just two different radiologists, let alone you know a different automated segmentation algorithm, the resulting contours can be totally different, which of course would impact feature values. And this stems even from something that's relatively easy to segment, like a lung tumor, where your tumor is very different than the surrounding you know air, <laughs> let alone something much more difficult with lower tumor to background ratio or something like that. And then finally, the way that you extract features and quantify them, there are lots of different ways to calculate the exact same feature. So most texture features were originally designed to be calculated on just a 2D image. So then when you move to a 3D medical image, the calculation is totally different. And there's lots of different ways to approach this. But you can call a feature the same thing, but calculate it differently. And that's, that's just one kind of part of this. So for a lot of these different texture features, you're actually remapping your inherent imaging scale to a new scale. And so it's called, you know, number of gray levels. And so the number of gray levels that you assign is inherently different and matters to the calculation of these features. So that got really technical. <laughs> um, and then... This is just my own personal tirade against radiomics. This isn't from the other paper. But one of the arguments I have against radiomics is that people tend to test just an insane number of features, kind of looking for correlations or predictions. And sometimes they don't perform any sort of multiple hypothesis correction or um, feature selection or anything like that. So effectively, they're p-hacking the data. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Which is fundamentally what 
the goal of it is, is to try and p-hack something out of the uh, noise, but maybe hopefully that p-hacked thing turns out to be a real correlation. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things that a lot of people have issues with, and I'm not sure this is something I have a problem with, from this, you know, p-hacking sort of approach, you know, you, you find, okay, entropy is predictive of X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, you take it to a physician or a radiologist and, you know, they look at it and they say, well, what does this mean? You know, can you interpret what this feature is finding about this image that says that this is cancer? I'm curious, Nick, how do you feel about that, the lack of interpretability? Well, so that's a, a very interesting problem with all of the AI type solutions to our problems. And I think that gets into a big discussion that I, I ties into all of these, you know, deep learning, big data, radiomics. The moment you're starting to not interpret the data with logic, but let the computer figure out how it should be interpreting the data to give you the answer you want, you lose the ability to expand on that information. You get the answer you're asking for out of the computer, but you you don't know what that answer, how it got to that answer, so you can't take that little bit of knowledge and apply it elsewhere. Um, and that's, you know, a problem we see everywhere that, that these systems are being applied to it. You can get the answer, but you don't know why that's working the way it is. And so it's not limited to radiologists not understanding why, you know, entropy in the, the sample has anything to do with the, the outcome. And how would I interpret that with my eyes? It's across the board, but I don't think that that's a reason not to use this. I think what it means is we have to try things like uh, uh, the the wolf um, discussion. Um, it, it's kind of related to radiomics. And you had told me about this before and you had described it better than I think I could. But that wolf image analysis problem became apparent because you can turn on a feature in the algorithm that shows you why the algorithm decided this was in this category and this was the answer it chose. And so if we can design them with that, we can sort of fix that problem. If we can design the algorithms with that in mind, that we need to be able to look at, trace through why this feature actually matters so that we can understand it, then we can grow from that. Um, but do you want to sort of talk about that wolf image analysis problem? Right. So a, a classic example of deep learning and trying to interpret what was happening was that uh, scientists gave a deep learning network pictures of wolves and pictures of huskies and asked the deep learning network, which one is it? Is it a wolf or is it a husky? And so it did very well. It had, you know, accuracy in, you know, the 90%. And then uh, scientists went back and looked at saliency maps, which are a way of looking at, you know, what part of the image is the network looking at when it's learning what it's learning. And they found that it was looking at everything but the wolf. And if there's snow, it was saying wolf. And if it wasn't snow, they were saying husky. 
And so that's, that's a classic example of where it's not learning what you want it to, or not using parts of the image that you'd want it to. But kind of a related example, but actually in, I believe it was a breast cancer study, they did something similar where they're trying to tell if nodules were uh, cancer or not. And they found that it was looking at, I think it was the breast ducts. And so clearly it's, it's kind of the same thing where it's looking at the background, but that background might have meaning as far as cancer goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so that's that's an interesting point to it, that it's not necessarily that what the algorithm is looking at is crazy and wrong for it to be looking at when it gets correlations and it does a good job at it, which would be like the wolf study. That th- Those features might seem like they're unrelated, but as you mentioned, if it's looking at the ducts and there is dilation or something that it can, you know, uh, hyperdensity in the images because it's compensating for something or there's increased flow, then it's seeing those features as the way the body is reacting to this thing in place, um, to the, the presence of cancer. And so it, it may not be incorrect for the algorithm to pick up on those as features that are worthwhile noticing. But the question is, you know, can we get in there and see why it, what features it found were important and then be able to justify why those features make sense and sort of go with the entire idea of science that, okay, we've, we've extracted this information. Can we make predictive predictions with this information? Can we put it into a new situation or put ourselves using that data into a new situation with a new algorithm that's not trained on it, but knows that that feature is important and test it somewhere else? to actually demonstrate that it found a unique feature that was worth isolating. Right, exactly. And so I think the next thing that we should talk about is, you know, how do we overcome some of these weaknesses? I've thought of about four different things that we can do in going forward, uh, including like harmonization of scan protocols, reconstruction, image analysis, and reporting. And so harmonization means bringing into harmony, so making them the same. Uh, So when you reconstruct a scan from two different vendors, for instance, you can't say, okay, use reconstruction one on both. You know, they won't be the same. You have to do certain testing to make sure that it is giving you kind of the same thing. And I think really key here is, you know, the image analysis and the reporting Uh, Like I said before, there's lots of different ways to calculate texture features or radiomics features. And then also making sure that the way that you report it is really clear how you are calculating it, how you are reconstructing your images, all that kind of stuff, because it's so dependent. Some of the things, like you had mentioned, the SUV max on different scanners. One of the ways that you can sort of correct for that variability uh, on the SUV Max is that tracer quality assurance step that's done in the morning. Currently, that's not collected into these algorithms and the images that result from that day's scans aren't corrected for that. They just have to be within the range. But there's no reason that collecting enough of this data together and demonstrating whether there is an effect and 
demonstrating if you need to correct for it that you can um, can't be done. So it exactly fits with that. That it doesn't even necessarily have to be that you harmonize the protocols, but that you be able to correct the data that you get out of each scanner and each you know system to a standard number. You know, like an STP sort of idea. What's STP? standard temperature and pressure that we don't care what temperature and pressure you are at right now. We're going to correct every measurement you make back to standard. I feel like I should have known that and did at some point during undergrad. (laughs) 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 Yeah. um, There's also work being done to be able to harmonize scans retroactively. And I, I don't think I've seen any papers about what that does to radiomics features, but maybe that's another way to bring scans into agreement. So uh, another thing that's important is to find features that are robust to at least, you know, small differences in these parameters. You know, clinical scans will never be acquired under the same conditions as, you know, clinical trials, for instance. You know, your your daily uh, scanning protocols are always going to be much more forgiving than your clinical trial protocols. And so... You have to be able to deal with those, you know, the daily life of the clinic. <laughs> that's that's an excellent point because the radiologist that's reading these scans is dealing with that. They don't look at the daily QA and make sure that they understand, well, today's SUV max was slightly lower on the uh, tracer than it was yesterday, so I'm going to adjust down my expectation. So, Right. And, and one way to find robust features is to perform some sort of feature selection. So, you know, you're, you're trying to get rid of features that wouldn't be good, whatever good means, and we'll get into that a tiny bit, but not too much, before you even start trying to correlate to things. And then the last thing is uh, independent data set validation. So this is something that people are doing a good job of stressing when they're looking at deep learning. But I feel like it's been has been neglected for radiomics research, and, and this you know independent dataset validation really can imply that it's you know images were acquired on different scanners which have different abilities. They have you know a different site, different you know population. So maybe your first dataset was tested on patients from Indiana, you know, and that has certain implications for. Causes of cancer, maybe. Actually, Indiana has high incidence of, of radon in basements. <laughs> uh, but anyway, whereas, you know, maybe you're testing your validation set is from Germany or something, you know, trying to get a little bit of heterogeneity in your data sets. So I kind of hinted at this. So, how do you know that a feature is good? So, the Quantitative Imaging Biomarkers Allowance, or KIBA, which I believe should only be pronounced using your best ET accent. You know, really, they've done a really nice job of outlining how do you move an imaging feature from concept to clinical implementation. And that's a whole episode in and of itself. So I'm just going to bring up one paper by Lynn et al., which was published this year. And just a short disclaimer, Christy is in my or was in my lab group until she graduated, so I am biased. But 
what she did in this paper was she looked at response to repeatability. And so test, retest, repeatability has been studied a lot and has been studied in radiomics even some. But what she's saying is that, okay, if you've got a repeatable feature, that's great. But if you look at it over time and the value of that feature never goes outside of those limits of of repeatability, is it telling you anything meaningful, right? And so, you know, ideally you want your metric to be highly repeatable, but you also want it to be sensitive to changes in the disease so that you can look at response, for instance. So, yeah. I think what we painted so far is a picture that radiomics might have potential in the future, but it's just got some big stumbling blocks right now. There's a couple of examples or at least one example of it doing a good job currently, but is it replacing physicians? No. Is it a supplement to, to the things that they, the tool set that they have? I think yes. Uh, and I think that's maybe where it starts is that it's a way to create some helper tools, kind of, I mean, think of the other applications of AI that we, we see in our world around us. Uh, like self-driving vehicles. Right now, we don't have self-driving vehicles, but we have Teslas that give helper features that you're still expected to be a person behind the wheel. We still expect to have a radiologist behind the CT looking at it and evaluating it. But maybe the radiomics feature analysis at the moment can raise flags on scans that need further review, closer inspection, because they correlated with features that were indicative of cancer or of certain processes that need further evaluation. But I don't want to also give a dark, bleak picture of the future that they're only going to be used as tools that that still need a person looking at every image because the ideal goal would be that we can replicate the process going on in the mind of the physician, the radiologist when they're reviewing it, and the system can learn from all the images that it sees. And because it's learning from all the images that it sees and it's just a computer system that's seeing all of the images, it's not limited to it needs to look at them for, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. It can look at them over all the images that are collected at an entire clinic or in an entire state or an entire country and be able to improve that data more and more as we go on. So right now, I don't think it's... For the most part, I don't think it's ready for clinical implementation. There might be yeah. a couple of exceptions, like your, there are some CAD systems that are that have been implemented using radiomics. Yeah, and, and you actually, it's hiding in that, that middle word there, right? Aided. It's The computer isn't doing the diagnosis as a final arbiter. It's aiding the physician in identifying... Um, and that's, I think, where we will be for a while. Well, how long a while? I don't know. We, we apply Moore's Law to uh, algorithmic uh, learning, and maybe we're talking in the next decade we'll have systems that can do that. But I think that it is an incredibly interesting field to look into, and it ties so deeply into these other AI learning systems that you can't isolate it. It's, it grew out of this genomics idea that we would look at it like 
we'd been trying to analyze genomics, but that was before we had the abilities of big data to to not just look at features that we could identify that were important, but let the computer figure out what features are important. So in one sense, I think you're right that radiomics has severe limitations that it may not overcome, but I think that it will fold itself into the other areas where the, the computer systems will be able to solve these problems for us. So now we are going to bring our colleagues, Sean and Andrea, onto the line. And if you have anything you want to add to the discussion, please join us at reddit.com slash r slash podcast. And tell us everything that we did not talk about today that we should have. Sean and Andrea, do you have anything to add to this conversation? I don't know, Allison, did you want to, before we bring them in, rebut any of the, the, the final, like, you know, optimistic... Uh, Elon Musky hope for the future sort of things I was saying. No, I, I do think you're right. I know I definitely give radiomics a really hard time. And I definitely wish that some studies that have been published had gone through more rigorous peer review. Because in some ways, I don't know, I feel like some people have approached radiomics as this is our fix all. And I don't think it is, especially without thinking about it really hard. And, but people are, are doing all the right things. It's just hard because you do need so much data. Yeah. So, so I've got some thoughts, let's say. <laughs> I, I just uh, am very optimistic about radiomics. Uh, I have to admit, I'm not super well versed in it, but you know, these things that we're, we're talking about. So I, I wanted to go back to Allison, what you were talking about, about harmonizing scanners and Nick, what you were saying about maybe incorporating the daily QAs as a way to normalize outputs on, for example, a PET scanner. One of the things that we're looking at, though, with these textures and features are not necessarily absolute intensities, but relative distributions. So why would harmonizing a scanner that works like a PET or um, looking at, say, trying to to make a T1 acquisition be a T1 acquisition for with these set times on an MRI, why would that be beneficial to a radiomics type uh, evaluation? So PET is my area of research, so I feel a bit more comfortable talking about that, at least first. I do PET research. <laughs> well, in undergrad, I did um, photoacoustic imaging, actually, but now I do PET research. So harmonizing scanner capabilities. Uh, what comes to mind, first of all, is... So recently I was looking at a data set that we had acquired on a new scanner with time of flight, and then we also reconstructed it using kind of older scan sort of parameters, including not using the time of flight information. And what we could detect, not using radiomics, just using kind of our normal protocols for our group, was just night and day different. And so if at that that such low level is different, you know that, you know, and that that's basically intensity. Well, no, it's it, so using time of flight data is a uncertainty in the image, right? It's not going to be your intensity, like, so you're not going to blur your image out in as many dimensions. Right. 
Right. So time of flight data is intrinsically changing the way you're measuring that distribution. My question is more. So, for example, um, there's an NRG protocol where we have to calibrate our PET CT, which is a time of flight PET CT, which is really nice. It does great, great job. Um, but we every year we submit submit a uniformity phantom and it has to be uh, within I think the the SUV average has to be within three percent and the met deviation the standard deviation has to be within like plus or minus ten percent over the whole phantom you know there's some some um, image quality parameters that they're measuring which would be somewhat of a validation of the pet scanner but it's different from what you're trying to say when you're saying harmonize. Right. Okay. So that's yeah. because you're what you're talking about is you're talking about, okay, what type of like, for example, there's a whole body PET scanner coming out, like a thing that's just giant. Right. You can fit a whole person in it. That image is going to be intrinsically different than something that you acquire on a normal PET CT. And so you've got to be careful when you're talking about harmonizing, because you have to start off by looking at apples to apples. You can't say, okay, well, we're going to take our old school, just coincidence with random suppression pet CT and compare that to a time of flight pet CT, but that also has, you know, different randoms and so on. Um, and say that, well, obviously they're not the same. So, but, but we can do the same type of analysis and come up with similar results. I mean, it's to me, I think that that's really tricky and it's, it's very nuanced, but part of the problem with this field is the amount of nuance you need to understand just in the same way that you have with Monte Carlo monolith. Right. So your problem with the harmonization, if you're comparing like to like scanners, you don't think that they should have to be harmonized? Is that? No, it's it's not that. But when you're saying that, you know, we need to harmonize this modality, you need to be very specific with what you're trying to harmonize. So okay. another example would be like a T1 post-contrast MRI. You know, how are you acquiring that? Uh, that image, you know, it, that will change some of the things that show up bright and dark. So that type of harmonization makes a lot of sense. At the same time, does that really change the texture or the, the histogram features within a, a, a VOI enough that you would see major differences between two different scanners? Really, what the, the reason that we're, we're qualifying this for these, these trials is whether or not the absolute SUV is indicative or predictive of a patient's real cancer response based on other imaging modalities and clinical examination. So understanding how that SUV relates from scanner to scanner to scanner is very important, but I don't know if that calibration, that normalization, just like you said, it's a, it could be a nonlinear thing. There could be intrinsic differences in the features of the scanner. So that's not going to correct. That's not going to be a sufficient harmonization. Harmonization is a lot more, I guess, nuanced. And, and I just wanted to get to that and kind of point it out. And, you know, there are people who are working on things like that, you know, calibrating your, your PET CTs across different imaging centers. Uh, I know, Allison, when you and I worked on the non-clinical physics group, we interviewed someone at NIST who is working on quantifying the actual T1 and T2 relaxation times for different biologic materials to put out an atlas so that we can start working on not maybe not radiomics so much but specifically a composition analysis just by looking at these types of um, imaging so you know there's a lot of work trying to go into the harmonization but what is the point specific to this type of feature analysis that we're looking at I guess is something that I, I'm still not 
particularly clear on, I guess, maybe what you said, Nick, where you're trying to discern what is the the real underlying difference versus what is the difference introduced by the variation in scanner type. I mean, that's, I think, the best way to describe it. Right. And even the way that you harmonize scanners, you're typically harmonizing to a single metric. Uh, so for PET scanners, it's usually SUV max. Which isn't going to work for the two different types of technologies that you're working on. Right. Right. Well, you can reconstruct not using the time of flight information, but. Right. But the, the point is, is that that would be a fair harmonization if that's what you're trying to harmonize. But if you're trying to right. harmonize between, you know, my old piece of crap. Kodak 35 millimeter instant disposable camera versus somebody's modern DSLR, you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> well, so this brings me kind of to the other thing I'd really been thinking about. And, uh, you know, you all know I pay attention to the MedFiz listserv, and I also get Google updates to my phone. Um, Google, of course, wanted to brag about how they put uh now admittedly it was an ai algorithm to read ct uh scans of the lung to compare and see if it could beat or be equivalent to a radiologist reading on the sensitivity and specificity for lung cancer and it found out that hey an ai algorithm definitely is as good as if not better than a radiologist at determining lung cancer now Admittedly, it is AI, but that has to rely on some radiomic features, right? It's got to look at, you know, it could be looking at the background, like how enlarged are the bronchioles near this, this, uh, this hyperdensity. What's the shape of the, the hyperdensity, though, is definitely important for that because you've got to differentiate between atelectasis and uh, a nodule, a, a, ca a cancerous nodule. So we are already starting to see this come in. And we're starting to see it work. And I just wanted to know if you, either of you had gone through and read that article or had any thoughts on that type of result. Well, so I think that's, that's a, a key point that that algorithm is a deep learning algorithm. Yeah, but it's learning based on the radio, radiomic features. But it isn't. It isn't learning based on radiomic features. It's learning based on not with the fundamental idea that radiomics comes from, which is that you can define the features. You can define the algorithm that creates the feature number. Like you can say, I run this algorithm on it and I get this intensity of that feature. Okay. Deep learning doesn't work the same way. And this is, like I said, an entire other subject to dive into, but fundamentally it is opaque to us what the algorithm is picking out that is important when it's doing that. You could be right that that effectively it's looking at these bronchioli features or, or other things, but the algorithm isn't specifically tuned to try and detect the size of the bronchioli and add that in as a weight. Instead, it's tuned to look at all of the pixels of the image and pass them through its own internal filtering system um, they do actually mention in that paper that they're, they're using some TensorFlow detection APIs uh, and lug segmentation APIs to, to, to do that analysis. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. It is, it's, it's not intrinsically working only with radiomic data, but undoubtedly right. it's going to use some of the radiomic tools. 
Right. And that's that. I, I think that's where my argument on this is. I'm kind of thinking of this as sort of uh, like a Byrads or a Pyrads type scale where an AI algorithm, probably even before the radiologist looks at the scan, should be evaluating these CTs because it's going to be so much faster than our poor radiologist having to go through every different combination of window level and every slice. All right, and that's that's why I sort of brought up the idea of how the Tesla autopilot wants to work. It wants to have a person sitting there paying attention to the road, but maybe not super full attention because the system is going to sit there and alert you when it doesn't know what it should be doing. But then maybe you don't have to do all the mundane stuff. And the same sort of system would be in work at work here where the algorithm can tell a normal scan for sure. And in this case, it can tell at least in their publication, they indicate that they've got extremely good and they claim beat the radiologist in uh, uh, cancer screening. But so that's, 4.4%. so that's extremely good. That's extremely good sensitivity there. Right. Right. But that first step of, we just have the algorithm giving the alerts to the radiologist is going to very quickly morph into the radiologist stops really paying attention to the scan and only gives it a check mark saying it's good. And maybe that's not a problem because uh, sort of the, the, the idea, if the algorithm is continuing to learn and continuing to be reinforced while it's learning, then it could do better than any single radiologist because it doesn't have to sleep and it can remember every scan it's ever seen. Right. And I think one thing about deep learning that's really cool is that you know, when it outputs its decision, it also gives its confidence, you know, the probability of it being right or whatever. And so, you know, if your cutoff is 0.5 versus, and your, you know, algorithm says, okay, I'm 0.51, you know, maybe those are the ones the radiologists really need to look at. Whereas, you know, if the confidence is 100%, then maybe those are the ones that radiologists don't need to look at. And so somehow bringing in the like confidence into reporting statistics that could be kind of cool too something i was just thinking of is this whole concept of like when you think about an airplane crash how it's it sticks in your head and it scares people more than you know driving in a car even though more people die in a car but when an airplane crashes it's just more overwhelming to you so you're more scared of flying um it's like this idea okay so what happens when the machine messes it I feel like, especially in the United States, where people are very quick to sue, if you're relying on this software, I don't know. That was just another thought I had. I don't know if it will ever come to anything, but it's interesting to think about how people will handle that. Like, if a human being misses something, that's one thing. But I feel like if a computer misses it and you're relying on that computer, people are going to get a lot more upset. Yeah, I'd love to dive into that. That's that's a deep philosophy thing, because do you feel... With the car versus airplane thing, I think the airplane is more frightening because you have no agency, you have no control over what happens in the airplane crash. You're randomly stuck in the plane that happens to have a problem or the weather event. Whereas the car, you delude yourself into thinking that you have control over that situation. And is it the same sort of thing when the radiologist is sitting there and, well, okay, there's a person behind it, so they have agency and they could solve this. They could have seen it, whereas the algorithm, it doesn't have agency because we've not got this idea that there should be any agents other than conscious humans, right? 
Well, and if you think about, you know, how important someone's mindset is in their response to a treatment or, or you know, like how how confident they are in their treatment, it's really important that people trust their doctors. And I think, I don't know, even having that idea that there's a doctor back there looking at it that you have sought out, that you have picked, that you trusted. I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. You know, because what about the person that drives to the next big city over because they want a, a second opinion on something? You know, they're going for the doctor in the name. And I don't, I don't know. Yeah. What if they drive to that second city over and what they get is the same algorithm ran against the uh, data and came up with the same answer? Yeah. I don't know. It's just interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's why we're definitely going to see you're still going to have human review. And like, think, for example, about how Perfraction works, the transit dosimetry software, where it might highlight a problem and say, well, technically this failed analysis today, but it's up to you as an individual to determine it. Okay, is this something that I really need to make take an action on or is this something that I don't need to? You know, it's you're still going to have that level of accountability just for the legal purpose for for a little while. Yeah. And uh the the legal one that uh, you were discussing, Andrew, is, is a very interesting one. And Sean brings up the trolley problems, rightfully, that um, you program this system to make some determination. Who's at fault when it does it wrong? Is the person who programmed it? Is the person that paid for the program? Is the person that was sitting behind the console when the computer ran it? We have no... We have a desire in our system to find someone who's at fault. And when the someone who's at fault isn't a someone, but is an algorithm, who is really at fault? We haven't answered that question yet. So far, we haven't had to, but we're getting closer to having to grapple with that, you know, fundamental problem of when do these AIs become enough that they're a someone or is it still the person or the company that programmed it that's at fault? And if this thing goes completely off the rails and starts just, you know, misdiagnosing like crazy, how long until you find it? <laughs> I don't know. Like, Well, it goes off the rails intentionally because it is, uh, you know, the uh, it realizes that if it kills all the humans that it can have control of the whole system. I, I'm the conspiracy right? theorist of the night. I know. <laughs> I need to throw it down a notch. <laughs> The Skynet of uh, radiology diagnosis what systems. What happens when that when it becomes self-aware? Okay, so you guys are joking about this, but there was an article where people intentionally introduced what appeared to be noise into radiology images in order to cause misclassifications. Yeah, it wasn't just noise. They specifically altered uh, right. image properties itself so like not not like the header file they 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 manipulated pixels and they put in fake cancers they covered over cancers and they fooled radiologists i would be kind of interested to see if that same data set would be fooled by those same manipulations unless they manipulated the whole slice maybe there are other background things that it could pick up on wait it fooled radiologists what i was thinking of was that you couldn't tell differences when you looked at it no, they were able to they were able to get radiologists to read these CT scans that originally had uh, lung cancers. Are you, are you talking about the one where it was like an Israeli company that hacked into a PAC system and it manipulated images? We might be talking about two different things. Okay, because that's a security bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, which we'll have some fun with uh, IT security when you and I discuss that, Sean. <laughs> yeah. And we're getting a little too close to AI. I want to talk about one other bit with radiomics before we move on. I have one bit when you get done with your bit, though, before we move on. Perfect. <laughs> so I'm thinking, like, what if, you know, the machine picked up the snow in the background of the husky image? In that situation, it wasn't really that significant because it could have been either animal that had snow in the background and they would eventually get it wrong. But what if there is something crazy like that that is significant that no one would even think to look at? That would be cool to see that. Well, again, out. this is a this is an AI question now. I know. I'm sorry. Well, is it, an, it, it is a radiomics. It's it's a big data. It's an AI. It's a, a, a deep learning question. If it does pick up on something that we couldn't see because we wouldn't, we didn't know to try and look for it. Yeah, like vasculature changes away from the tumor. Yeah. That is where potentially having this other, the feedback path. And this is the, the biggest problem I have personally with the way big data gets used and the way deep learning gets used is not having that feedback of what features did it pick up on that were important that gave it the outcome that it did? Because it is entirely possible that you're right, that the random chance of letting the system figure out the features that seem to be important may give rise to some unique feature that you couldn't intuitively determine, which is effectively what we're doing with radiomics. We're creating these feature maps that that are based on our intuition of what should matter. But you go to the big data, the deep learning ideas, and it's not using intuition. It's using random chance to come up with it. Yeah. And you may find a feature that you could not have come up with on your own, but maybe a real feature. But you won't know that unless you have the algorithm also tag what things it found were important. So, listen up, computer programmers. We need tags. Well, it's more complicated than that most of the time <laughs> well we're getting really really into the ai and very far away from radiomics this is this isn't really radiomics what we're talking about right yeah that, that's the the the, the key th difference that is what separates radiomics from the rest of the ai stuff is that you're giving it the features and you only want it to look in this restricted data set and perhaps that's its fundamental limitation is that it's only going to be looking at what you already know is important to look at. Yeah. So, so the, the question I had was we, we didn't really talk about one of the, the benefits of radiomics, which could be correlation. I mean, we, we mentioned that you can correlate radiomics with uh, say a slide that you have and some histology that you have, but then using a, a correlated radiomic pattern to then expand on that and use this as sort of an artificial core biopsy type tool. One of the things that was reported a few years ago at Astro um, for the president's symposium was just the the ways that we are measuring and evaluating heterogeneity within masses, within cancer, within t normal tissue even, radiomics is a great way for us to start looking at these types of features. Um, and I feel like we really passed over that when you two were discussing this. I, I don't think that we talked a lot about what is a different application besides just a tissue diagnosis, but maybe more of a prognostic indicator or a, a measure of um, correlation with confirmed tissue biopsies. 
Right. So that's definitely one of the things that is the big promise of radiomics. And that's really where radiogenomics came from, was if you've got a patient with more than one lesion, for instance, you know, you can't biopsy every lesion, the patient's not going to put up with it. And so you miss a lot of the, you know, inter-lesional heterogeneity that you can capture easily and non-invasively on, you know, radiographic imaging. And so I definitely skipped over this, but this is kind of my PhD. (laughs) I hit it again. Twice in one episode. Okay, well, this was going to be my PhD, and then we only got seven patients, so (laughs) it fell apart a little bit. So yeah, looking at does imaging heterogeneity correlate with genomic heterogeneity? Can you say, you know, does, you know, histology heterogeneity, does that mean that this lesion is more aggressive or something like that? And then trying to see, you know, does that, can you measure that without, you know, taking histological slices or invasive or biopsies you know it, it, that's definitely one of the key drivers of radiomics and has had some success in particular if you look at any of the papers by Ayert's group at harvard that's mm-hmm. one of their big driving forces yeah and i i so at astro a couple of years ago the president's symposium talked about heterogeneity not even within multiple tumors but even within a single tumor so, for example, a prostate. I mean, everybody uses prostate as their first test case. And <laughs> this is, you know, it's really like, we, hey, we do saturation biopsies on these things. It's a really good, rich data set that we can, we can use. And I think a lot of that detail has been shown to be very rich and useful, particularly when using things like multiparametric MRI. Going back to the PIRADS criteria, using MPMRI as a proxy for actual tissue biopsy is something that we're already starting to go to in large part because of the uh, radiogenomic work that we've done. And I, I think that, you know, we there was a lot of negativity expressed towards radiomics, and I <laughs> kind of wanted to come in here and point out a couple things where it was doing well. And this is definitely an area where I've really thought, you know, geez, this is a way that my profession has really advanced the care of patients in a, in a way that no doctor ever could. You know, on their own, I don't think that a physician will ever go forward and, like, write a computer program to do this. Obviously, it was a huge, uh, a huge endeavor to do, but it's what we're starting to see. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation about radiomics and medical physics and uh, medical imaging. I hope that you will drop us a line, provide us with your thoughts on this topic on our Reddit page, leave us a review, and check out our next episode, which will be about radium girls. So thank you very much, everyone. Live long and prosper. I'm Nick. Allison. Andrea. And Sean.